0: Hello and welcome to the Informed Traveller podcast, a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveller. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. With Halloween coming up, we've got some ghostly stories for you from Pat Hancock. She is the author of the scholastic book series, Haunted Canada, proving you don't have to travel very far to find a spooky tale. Plus, we'll visit the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum in Fall River, Massachusetts, a story that has haunted and fascinated many people to this day, including myself. But I'm not sure if I'd have the gumption to stay there overnight, though. But I want to start out by learning a little bit about the whole concept of dark tourism. And it comes from a conversation we had a while ago with Alex Grevener. He's an associate lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. So here is a replay of that conversation for you now. Uh, let's start with a definition. What uh, is What is dark tourism?
1: Well Dark tourism might sound like quite a recent invention, but it 's actually a practice which goes back certainly hundreds but perhaps even thousands of years and it 's the act of visiting sites which are associated with subjects like death, disasters, atrocities, and suffering uh, we 're not dealing with in ghosts or the supernatural here. Dark tourism is the act of encountering real events and real death and suffering. So, some sites may be memorials, which are simply associated with those kinds of events, whereas others are sites at which those dark events actually took place. And across the world, there's a huge variety of sites of dark tourism as it's now a a well-established and recognized industry. Mm -hmm. And the sites may deal in sort of historic interest. They may be there for political reasons. They may be there for entertainment purposes. But certainly in in the most part, we're, we're generally dealing with some form of commemoration.
0: So what is the attraction? I guess this is where you get into your studies, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is, um, and that's a very good question to to consider what the attraction is, and there, there's many competing theories as as to why people uh, engage with with these sites, which many of which are, are dealing with really horrific and deeply unpleasant issues, um, you know, and of course there's, there's not going to be one absolute theory as to why people do. But for example, um, some people do dismiss dark tourism as as simply voyeurism, that that we like to be scared and we like to see gory things just as the same as we like to go and watch horror movies. Um, However, others see dark tourism as a much more profound attempt um, to pay respects to victims and to learn about them, the atrocities, so they might not be denied or repeated again. Um, I I bring you back to the example of the Rwandan genocide. That's certainly something that, that the Rwandan people wanted to do to avoid it being denied or repeated. Um, personally, I see dark tourism as something a little bit between the two um, of those two theories really, um, whilst we do like to engage with that with outrageous and dark events, we also need to be able to to comprehend the the extremes of human behavior um, you know the, um, the reality is that these dark subjects are part of our human history, and we need to be able to express grief but at the same time understand how people can do that mm-hmm. and we like to sort of push death. Certainly, in a Western uh, in Western society, we like to sort of remove death from daily life. We don't like to think about it too much or talk about it too much. So, I think it's really important that we have these sites where we can go contemplate our own mortality, um, and then we can return to our normal lives knowing that we that we've dealt with that elsewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there is some controversy uh, with uh, the exploitive nature that some people say. What do you what, what do you think about that?
1: Oh, well, without doubt, anything that, that involves death will, will always provoke um, huge debate as to, as to what's appropriate um, for each given site. So, for example, the, the question of who's going to benefit, you know, when we talk about tourism, we often talk about its economic um, benefits to, a, to an area. So who's going to benefit from that? You know, is it going to be the survivors or relatives of, of those affected by the events in question? Is it going to be people of the local area? Or perhaps uh, is it going to be charities Um, And there's also the the, the question of what perspective um, this site takes. You know, the reality is that many of the dark subjects are immensely complex, Mm -hmm. so certain aspects of the story may be ignored, you know, if they're inconvenient to to some other discourse, or they might even be denied. So it's undoubtedly an ethical minefield. And um, in many countries, the idea of paying money um, at a site of dark tourism is is promoted problematic. Mm And you use the word um, exploitative there, I think. And yeah, there's the question of, are you exploiting the dead? Um, And that's certainly a very Western idea, because in other countries, um, non-Western countries, the idea of paying, you know, if you like a custodian to look after a, a site, it's not an issue at all. Yeah. Um, and it's always going to depend on the site itself, and, and so site managers um, have to create that fine balance between um, engaging visitors who want to, to visit, for, for whatever reason that is, and the issue of sensitivity.
0: Well, it is a fascinating topic. Uh, it is dark tourism, and Alex Grevener is the Associate Lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK and an expert. In dark tourism, thank you for and an to play on using a play on words here, shedding some light on the subject, Alex. You're very,
1: you're very welcome. I'm delighted to talk to you, Randy.
0: Well, with Halloween just a few days away, I thought it might be fun to visit and learn about, I think, one of the spookiest places you could possibly stay at, and that's the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. It's located in Fall River, Massachusetts, and one of the tour guides you'll meet when you go there is Rick Bertoldo. He's also the gift shop manager at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum, and Rick joins us now to tell us more about it. Hi, Rick. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Take me back to... To uh, August the 4th, 1892, and the story of Lizzie Borden, real quick.
2: Well, on the morning of uh, August the 4th, 1892, there were two brutal murders committed at ninety-two Second Street in the Fall Far River. And uh, after an investigation and inquest, they uh, arrested the daughter, Lizzie Andrew Borden. People that were murdered were Andrew Jackson Borden, her father, and Abby Murphy Borden, her stepmother.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the trial was a sensation. It uh, made national, international news. Uh, it was the first time in our country's history, from what I understand, that they used the wire service. So people in San Francisco were reading the same articles and stories as people in Boston. And everybody got so involved in it; it became the trial of the century.
0: Hmm. Well, and it's it seems to have lived on. Uh, this the story is, is is fascinated so many people for so long. Uh, why do you think that is? Other than the fact that uh, you know what you just mentioned. Well,
2: 1892. You have to understand the time period we're talking about is the Victorian era, uh, and uh, Robert Cleveland's about to be elected president uh, that year, and. Uh, but there's a lot of going on socially. Uh, it's kind of like a social upheaval with women's rights. And women's groups were just getting organized around that time. And the ones that were organized to put Lizzie during the trial. Outside the courthouse were dozens and dozens of women holding signs, free Lizzie, equal rights of Women," amendment for women, that type of thing. And uh, so that, all that clamoring was going on as well. So I think that sort of made such a sensational trial because here you have a, a woman, uh, 32 years old, living at home, with her mom, a stepmom and, uh, and father and mm-hmm. sister, Emma. Emma was older than Lizzie. Emma was 41 at the time of the murders. Lizzie was 32. Uh, so you had these women living at home, and then she gets arrested for killing both of her parents in broad daylight on August the 4th, 1892. And it, it was such a sensation. I mean... Tell me about the house now. What's it like now? Well, it's... How do I say it. It's spirited. <laughs> uh it has a lot of spirit to it. It um, has good days and bad days, just like any any human being would have. It kind of has a life of its own. And we don't know how many uh, spirits are in the house, but uh, I think there's quite a few. But they don't come out all the time. And, and we just kind of like sharing the space with them. There's nothing I felt threatening in the house at all. In fact, I, I tell a lot of people, you know, the house doesn't really scare me. What scares me more. which me more. Some of the guests that spend a night at the house. <laughs> well, let's talk so.
0: about that. Spending a nice a night at uh, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. What's that like?
2: Well, um, people check in after four, and we have six bedrooms and eight beds, so we can, you know, we put two people in each bed. at sixteen people. Mm-hmm. And we also have four out cars, so we can accommodate like around twenty people a night. Uh, there are days I go by when nothing happens, and there are days when people have experiences. They leave early. We have to have a, we have a sign in the gift shop that says no refunds for early departure. Uh, <laughs> so, but uh, it's a fascinating house. Just the house itself, uh, when you look at it, it's been re- preserved over the years. People have owned the house, I think they knew, and they uh, they have kept the uh, the interior of the house, which was great for us. When Andrew Borden bought the house in 1872, he converted it to one-family home, took the second floor apartment, made all the bedrooms out of them.
0: So now, but tell me the about uh, the tours. a Typical tour: how long it takes, and uh, and what what it, was it was entails. About an hour
2: long. Yeah, it was about an hour long to uh, go through every room in the house. During the daytime, we don't go into the basement because uh, you know it is a and B, mm-hmm. and we're doing laundry and stuff down there. But at night, the night tour for the overnight guests includes. All the rooms in the house, plus the basement, and uh, it's an interesting tour. It's an hour long, like I say, so it's full of, of information, and we talk about each room as we go through it, and how it pertains to that what happened that day. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating So We talk about Andrew's murder, Abby's murder. Uh, poor Abby, she was struck 19 times. They found her in her bedroom uh, between the bed and the bureau, and most of her injuries were the back of the head. Andrew, uh, she was actually killed first. She was killed between 9 and 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andrew uh, had gone out. when uh, He came back home around 11 o'clock. Uh, actually, he arrived at the house around 10.30ish. And around 11 o'clock, he was murdered. Lying on a sofa, taking a nap. He was struck 11 times to the face. One of those strikes, his eye socket ran in half. Yikes. So hopefully he died with the first strike. You know? Hmm. But, <laughs> yeah, lot of the... Uh, well, the mystery as to who, who did this is Lizzie was tried as a 13-day trial. Uh, of course, back then, it was all male jury, and uh, they found her not guilty.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So know. now the mystery goes on. If she didn't do it, then who did? Well, that's you
0: know? that's the question, right, that uh, always remains. If she didn't do it, who did?
2: Yeah. A lot of people don't understand either this, that uh, the night before the murders, there was an overnight guest that spent the night at the house. His name was John Riddick Morse. John Morrison, the brother of the first Mrs. Borden, Sarah Anthony Morse Borden.
3: Mm. And
2: uh, he spent the night there, he didn't have an overnight bag or change of clothes for the next day. He was a suspect early on. And, uh, but the thing of it is, when Abby was murdered, there were only two people in the house, Abby and Lizzie. Mm-hmm. The police assumed it had to have been her. The maid, Bridget Sullivan, was outside in the south side of the house, washing the outside windows. And she was actually carrying on a conversation with the maid next door while Abby was being murdered upstairs. Wow. So when the police realized that there were only two killed in the house, you know, they figured, hey, here it is. Right? Yeah. It and of course... But, the, they couldn't, but they couldn't prove it. That's the thing.
0: This is in the days where there's no DNA evidence and they don't
2: have all the technology, Correct. right? Correct. Uh, and there were. You know, originally, uh, I wanted to understand that they originally had like 57 suspects to begin with. But uh, that number, of course, is inflated because, in fact, you know, they take round, round up their usual suspects, you know. <laughs> they figured out all the vagrants and everything else, and they, they had less than about 57, but they narrowed it down to like, like a handful. And then, of course, to their minds, it was Lizzie in the first place. So, and I think that's the problem, too. When they went out investigating other suspects, I think in the back of their mind, they were going there to actually try to make sure that there were no other suspects, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, Because uh, they were so sure it was her. But unfortunately... John Moss, his alibi was quite good. But uh, the thing about that is they never double-checked his alibi.
0: Ah. And you also have some uh, interesting events that you hold, like Paranormal Night. I'm just looking on your website. Tell me a little bit about
2: that. Yeah, actually, this is uh, we just started doing these things uh, late last year, early this year. Um, We're looking at, you know, we do tours during the day, but sometimes we don't have any. We usually close down... uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays as far as the overnight guests staying mm-hmm. in the house. This time of year, it's a little different because there's more demand, so we do have guests for those days. But those days gives us a chance to get caught up with everything, you know, and uh, take a breather and then get back to it again. So in those two days, we figured, hey, we get an opportunity here to do something. here, so we decided to do some things at night, like night tours, uh, overnight guests get the night tour. And so a lot of people asking about well, what's the difference between the night tour and day day tours. So well, let's offer the night tour to, to people during the day. So, we offer night tours as well, so they can mm-hmm. come in and have the same experience that the I like, guests had, without having to stay at the house. You know, <laughs> which is kind of cool because that tour is pretty cool. where we talk about the history of the house, the history of the crime. Yeah, you know, so something strange things going on in the house. We have a binder with pictures that were taken over the years from different people in the house. It's some extraordinary evidence, it's incredible.
0: Hmm. Uh, do you ever okay. get people that ask for their money back <laughs> or, or, or check out early?
2: Well, they know. They know that. Signs in the gift shop. We no departure.
0: I, I I'm not sure if I could do that, but uh, I, know, I, most I su-
2: people know what they're getting into when they come here. But we've had some people that have come to the house just booked for the sake of booking it, not even know what it was all about. Ah. Kind of
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it, the The legend lives on, I, I guess, right? And it's going to continue. Uh, true, the, true li- the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. Uh, you can find more information on their website, lizzie-borden.com. And Rick Bertoldo is the manager of the gift shop and tour guide. If you're there, say hi, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> so, Actually,
2: if you're on the website and you hit tour information, it'll come up and my picture will be right there.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for your time, Rick. It was uh, fabulous. Hey, no
2: problem. My pleasure. Happy Halloween. <laughs>
0: Well, if you're looking for a good ghost story, you don't have to travel very far because chances are there's one close to your own backyard. But if you want to read about a few, a great resource is the Scholastic book series called Haunted Canada. The author is Pat Hancock, and we are very pleased to have Pat join us now to share a few of her ghostly stories. Hi, Pat. Hi, how are you, Randy? I'm so glad to be chatting with you. My uh, daughter loves your books. Uh, They're with Scholastic Canada, a series of books called Haunted Canada. But how did did this all come about for you?
4: Uh, It came about because I had written some spooky short stories. I wrote several books for Scholastic, and they came up with the idea, and they called me um and uh, asked me to write a book of true ghost stories which threw me for a loop because I'm not sure what exactly they mean when they say true ghost stories but they meant well known written up, acknowledged, people still report, that kind of ghost story. Mm. So I did it. I did the first one. It was very popular. I did the second. I did the third. And I should mention that uh, another author, Joel Sutherland, did four, five, six, and seven. You get all used up. You can't think <laughs> of another ghost story to write. <laughs> but. It seems to really love them.
0: Yeah, well, they are good reads, uh, and I didn't realize there's so many stories, uh, ghost stories, across Canada. So now, no, matter what destination you're at, you can probably find one, right? Well, and some of the the bigger cities have ghost walks,
4: and they advertise them, they promote them as a tourist attraction. And they're very popular (laughs) around Halloween, but they're available in the summer. They're a way of taking you around the city.
0: Mm -hmm. There are
4: several reported sightings of ghosts, and um, people can find those if you check online when you're planning on going somewhere. Check out, see if there's a ghost walk. There are different, um, different popular sites too. the old Ottawa jail, people supposedly see and hear ghosts there. So I don't know if they still do it, but they used to pay to spend the night there.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that
4: kind of a thing. Uh,
0: well, I, uh, What is the appeal, in your opinion, of, of the, what people like so much about ghosts and ghost stories and, and that sort of thing? They're very popular, right?
4: Well, I think, and I've talked to a lot of kids, and I interviewed several adults, I think that first, we don't like being frightened, but there's something delicious about it if it turns out not to be as scary as we thought. It's kind of like riding a Ferris, um, a roller coaster. Um, and so this, the feeling of spookiness, the feeling of what's that sound, what's that shape, who's that, we all know that and then some of those stories really really um exaggerate that experience a bit like a Stephen King book and uh but when you read them especially when you're young and they're over, you go, whew, that would have been scary. (laughs) And and the next time you're in the woods or the big moon is shining, you might remember them and you might feel nervous again. (laughs) Or if you go to the cemetery or watch the uh, Northumberland Strait, if you live on the East Coast, Mm -hmm. where ghost ships are often seen, if you've read them, you're almost hoping... You'll see or feel or hear a ghost, but you don't want it to hang around.
0: <laughs> That's for sure, right? Do you have a? I mean, you've written so many uh, stories about so many places. Do you have a, a few favorites that stand out that sort of made the hairs stand behind your neck? <laughs> well,
4: um, they they do for different reasons. One one sort of small ghost story is in Montreal. The house isn't even known anymore. Really, I still think of it so often. Imagine you get up in the morning and all the tea towels are tied in knots. You have a few kids. You say, did you do this? No, I didn't do this. A little girl in particular. Uh Well, don't do it again. The next morning, the curtains are all tied in knots. And then the bath towels. And then some T-shirts. That kind of a thing that keeps happening night after night would really scare me. The police even locked some curtains in the room and everything, and they were still nodded the next morning, and no one had got in. That one sends shivers out my
0: spine. <laughs> no kidding, right?
4: Well, yes. <laughs> well, it, the it's... bloodthirsty ones, of course, scare everybody. mm mm-hmm. Stuff yeah. of the haunted movies, they're the stuff of so many stories um and because I wrote these for kids, they couldn't be quite as gory as some um, adult ones are, but they they're a the, the Banff hotel. A uh, golf course in Victoria. I mentioned the jail in Ottawa. There's a, a pub in Niagara on the Lake. Um, a soldier is supposed to scare people every now and then. Scare servers, uh, waiters, and waitresses, and scare guests. Some people go there to be scared. <laughs> well, you don't know. Have- Other people claim they have a ghost in the hopes that they'll attract attention to their place. Another one that struck me as very sad, because some of them are very sad, was one um, that is still regularly talked about in a place in the Ottawa Valley called Mm Manitics. There's a grist mill there that's one of the last ones that's still operating. This is on the Rideau Canal. And people go and see it at work. But the man who started, the, who built that grist mill was a rich man named Courier. And he, his first wife and children all died from, I can't remember the disease now. And then he thought he'd never marry again. And then he found a beautiful young wife. He couldn't believe she loved him. And... Um, he, He married her, and it was the first anniversary of the mill. He took her there to show her this place he was so proud of. She was wearing a long white dress. Her dress got caught as the wheels turned. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't have to say Mm -hmm. what happened to her. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much left. And, of course, he was devastated. And people still see this woman in white quite often at the mill. Wait. As a result of checking out that old story, I found something that interested me. That man finally married again, and he was rich. He was a lumber baron. He built a very fine, beautiful house in Ottawa, on the Ottawa River just so it'd be different and beautiful and his third wife would really love it. Mm -hmm. The house is still there. It's at 24 Sussex.
0: Oh my gosh, really?
4: His house, yeah. Wow. There's no ghost in that house, but I uh, I, I was so interested when I found that out. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Sometimes that's another thing about ghost stories. If you're traveling around, you go, Oh, that's where that boat is always seen oh that's where the lady was walking on the golf course that u of t oh that's where the jilted lover killed his competition and threw his body down into a well and so on Mm -hmm. and look there are the gash marks on the big wooden door it always helps if you've got some evidence
0: yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, you don't have to go very far to find a ghost story, that's for sure. You can uh, you can almost use your books as a, as a travel guide if you're looking for ghost stories across the country, because there's lots of them. They're called Haunted Canada. They're with the Scholast- Scholastic Series, written for children, but adults love them too. My daughter loves them, as I said. And uh, you can find them on Amazon and Chapters and all those places that you can find books. And Pat Hancock is the author of those books. I really appreciate your time, Pat. It was a pleasure chatting with you.
1: It's the
4: same. And don't be scared. (laughs) Try
0: not to. Okay, bye-bye, Randy. And that is this week's Informed Traveller podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, take a minute, rate the show, leave us a review, and tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to drop me a line... My email address is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler, or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.